You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 59 of Tax Talks. This is Heidel Robson. How do you register as a tax practitioner, as a tax or best agent or a tax financial advisor? I went to see Ian Taylor, the chair of the Tax Practitioners Board. The TPB is the board that reviews and decides your application to register, so perfect to ask for advice. My first question to Ian is, who is required to register with the TPB? Here's Ian's answer. Basically, anyone who provides a tax agent service, a BAS agent service, or a tax financial advice service for a fee or other reward needs to be registered with the board. Okay, so there are a number of elements of that. Firstly, you've got to be able to define what a tax agent service is, what a BAS agent service is, and what a tax financial advice service is. And they're all defined within the Act, and I won't go into those. But if you do provide those services and you charge a fee for it, then you need to be registered. We consider that fee includes bundled fees and other reward is something that's given or received in return for a service. So we've got a fairly um, broad interpretation of what a fee for services is. So you know, if a, if a person says, I don't provide tax services for a fee, but I provide bookkeeping services and I charge a fee for bookkeeping, then we say that's a bundled fee, it'll all be included. So you are charging a fee for the for the tax services that you're actually providing. Now, one thing I will point out, however, is that anyone who's charging a fee has to be registered. If you're not charging a fee, i.e. you're an employee of an entity, then you don't need to be registered generally, right? You don't need to be registered because you're not charging a fee, you're receiving a wage or salary from your employer to provide that service. And typically, I guess, if we look at the, you know, the large, uh, the, the big four accounting firms, they've all got you know, very large tax divisions and a large number of employees within those tax divisions. Those employees might be dealing directly with clients and preparing service, providing services, etc., signed off by the partners, managers, directors, partners, etc. But not all of them need to be registered because they're not receiving a fee for doing the service. The they're partnership is receiving it and the employees are receiving a wage. So they don't need to be registered where they're not providing services for a fee reward. There are, however, circumstances where an employee may need to be registered where the entity that they're working for, i.e. a company or a partnership, needs to meet what's referred to as a sufficient number requirement. Well, we might come to that later. But, you know, the fact is that every non-individual entity that's registered with the board has to have individuals standing behind it. That's a sufficient number requirement. And so employees may be required to be registered to meet that requirement. But other than that, employees don't need to be registered. Mm. Now, I guess the other issue, just briefly, is the issue that what's the difference between tax agents, base agents and tax finance advisors? A tax agent can provide the complete range of tax advice, and those services include working out and advising about liability obligations or entitlements of clients under a tax law. They can represent those entities in their dealings with the Commissioner of Taxation and it also includes services where the client would ex would be expected to rely on that service or that advice to satisfy their tax liabilities, obligations and entitlements. So this um, then comes down to an issue I guess also in the context of tax financial advisors, ASIC talks about general advice versus personal advice. 
Yeah, so typically, I guess, if we look at the larger accounting firms, they have a large number of employees. Those employees deal directly with clients and they they don't need to be registered because it's the partners and the the entity that's registered, that's the entity that's charging the fee. And But in the circumstances where an entity registered with the board is not an individual, it's a company or a partnership, then they need to meet this sufficient number requirement. What is that number? What is sufficient? Uh, okay. All right, so the TPB has put out a paper on our um, website that you can follow up on where we talk about how you determine the sufficient number requirement. But we don't specify any formula as such. So what we say, in essence, is that the requirement for the sufficient number is effectively a self-assessment process. But what we're interested in is ensuring that the entity itself provides a competent service to its clients. So that's not something which is um, necessarily uncommon. In fact, it's very uh, much what the objective of every entity is that you provide a competent service to your clients. No one wants to be sued for giving incorrect or incomplete or advice that's not appropriate. So what we say is that each entity is in a better position to determine what number of people or how many people they need to supervise the number of staff and their circumstances to provide that competent service. Mm. So if you, but, yeah. but a submission, we get a submission from them, we look at it and we say, well, that looks good or that doesn't look good. So again, to take an example, if we've got one individual who's uh, running a company, one supervising agent for a company that's lodging 30,000 income tax returns, we would probably say that's not really going to be a sufficient number. sufficient number because if you work it out on a basis, you know, if you're lodging 30,000 income tax returns, how long are you spending on reviewing each tax return before or after it's been lodged? Um, it wouldn't, wouldn't uh, be sufficient. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's what we take into account. It's a self-assessment process. There is no formula as such. However, we do take into account the nature of the business, the geographic locations of the business. We, we look at the training that's provided to the staff. We look at the quality control assurance processes that are in place, whether there's pre and post reviews of documentation, et cetera, et cetera. So they're all the things that we want to look at. We want to understand the nature of the business, but ultimately it's up to that individual entity to tell us what they think it is. And if we've got issues, then we'll raise them with them and we'll talk through it with mm. them. My original assumption had been that in a partnership, every partner needs to be registered and in a company that every director needs to be registered but that's actually not the case. It comes down to what is deemed to be sufficient. Correct. But there are two elements of that. The first thing is that in every company and in every partnership, every director and every partner must meet, uh, must meet the fit and proper requirement. Right? So that doesn't mean to say that they have to be part of the sufficient number. And if they're not part of the sufficient number, they nevertheless still need to ensure that they meet the fit and proper Requirement. Now, that means in, in, for example, again, a large accounting firm where you've got a number of partners who might be tax partners, you might have audit partners, you might have management consulting partners, whatever we call it these days, all of the partners need to meet the fit and proper requirement. Again, you'd expect they would anyway, but if there are any of those things that can happen, like one of them is declared bankrupt or something like that, then they, they would cause an issue. They'd probably cause an issue anyway, and they'd probably no longer be a partner if they made bankrupt. But nevertheless, that's something we have to take into account. But every partner of a partnership and every director of a company must meet the fit and proper requirement, regardless of whether they then also meet the sufficient number requirement. 
typically, again, in the case of a large accounting firm, the audit partners and the management consulting partners would not be sufficient number requirement. It's the tax partners that would be. Um, and so, again, you might have a large firm where if they've got 100 tax partners, every one of their tax partners might be registered as a sufficient person, sufficient number person. I actually made the mistake and first looked for a definition of fit and proper in the Code of Professional Conduct. And then it dawned on me that the Code of Professional Conduct is about what you do, whereas the fit and proper is about what you are, and hence the fit and proper is not defined in the Code yeah. of Professional Conduct. It's actually um, interesting in that sense, the way you put it, is that each person who is registered with the board, including the directors and partners of a partnership, must meet the fit and proper test. There is actually no definition of fit and proper as such in the Act itself or in the Code of Professional Conduct, as you've highlighted. However, what it does in the Act itself is to identify some criteria that the board needs to take into account to decide whether or not a person continues to meet the proper, the fit and proper requirement. And so in the Act itself, in Section 20-15, it says... In deciding whether it is satisfied that an individual is a fit and proper person, the board may have regard to a number of different things, right? We have to have, or you have to take these into account, may have regard to, and as a result of looking at those things, we can then make a determination in our own mind as to whether or not the person satisfies that fit and proper test. But there's an overall consideration which is perhaps not identified totally within these criteria, and that is that the person must always act honestly and with integrity in their dealings with their clients, with the board, with the commissioner, etc., etc., in the Act itself, it talks about the board has to take into account whether the individual is of good fame, integrity and character. And so that's a bit of the overall definition, if you like. But it also then goes on to say that we have to take into account certain things that happen and those things can uh, can also impact the um, way in which we look at it. So the first thing is whether or not the person's been made bankrupt or secondly, whether or not they've been sentenced to a term of imprisonment. And, and that can be for anything. So it doesn't have to be uh, a financial t- type related crime. It just has to be imprisonment for any uh, activity in the last five years. And likewise, the bankruptcy applies in the last five years as well. But then there's some also, also some other events which are defined in section 20-45, which we have to take into account as well. And they include whether or not the person's been convicted of a serious tax offence whether or not they've been convicted of any offence involving fraud or dishonesty, whether or not they've been penalised for being a promoter of a tax exploitation scheme, whether they've been penalised for implementing a scheme that's been promoted on the basis of conformity with a product ruling, but then not continuing with that ruling, or you may become an understarged bankrupt or go into external administration or you are sentenced to a term of imprisonment. So those things are also sent out there. And what I tend to do is say these are the negative factors that we need to take into account. And unfortunately, there are times when these things have had to be um, invoked. We've found that people have been subject to uh, convicted of serious tax offences or uh, other offences involving fraud or dishonesty, sent to imprisonment, etc. We have to determine then or not whether a person continues to meet that fit proper test. So this is what a person has to show you when they... Want to at all times, they need to be fit and proper at the at the first point 
when they become registered, but importantly, they must continue to ensure that they're fit and proper at all times thereafter. And we do ask the question now, we have what's referred to as an annual declaration process, which means that each year a person declares to the board that they are or that they are meeting that fit and proper requirement, and none of those negative things that I've referred to there have applied to them in the last 12 months. Let me quickly ask you something completely different, and that is about legal practitioners. I thought I read on your website that it says that legal practitioners can give tax advice without being registered as long as they don't prepare or lodge tax statements or BES or IAS statements or pay-as-you-go summaries or superannuation guarantee statements. So lawyers can give some tax advice without being a registered tax agent. Absolutely correct, yes. So a lawyer lawyer can um, provide, so long as they're uh, um, registered with a practicing certificate with uh, various state-based authorities, uh, so long as they're registered, they a registered practitioner as a legal practitioner, registered practitioner, legal practitioner, I think it's the terms precisely. So as long as they're registered, they do are able to provide tax advice, but they are not able to lodge documents with the commissioner, which would be in the form of BAS statements and, uh, and tax returns, etc. They can, if they wish to do that, they can register with the board, and there's a special criteria, a special pathway for legal practitioners with legal qualifications to become registered with the board if they want to lodge as well. Yep. But otherwise, no, they, they can provide those services without being registered. So what is required to register for the first time? Okay, so a person who is at least 18 years of age will be eligible to apply. They must meet that fit and proper person requirement, which we've just talked about. They also need to satisfy the qualifications and experience requirements, and they will vary depending on the nature of the registration they're seeking. And there are many pathways within each of those three categories that we've talked about. Um, But in addition to that, they must also or will be able to maintain professional indemnity insurance that meets the board's requirements. And when they've got all of that information, then they can apply online um, with uh, and, and attach their documentation, etc. So that's the base requirement. Does any PI insurance do, or do we need to watch out for certain things that some PI insurances offer and some don't? There is the requirement of um, professional indemnity insurance, and the the requirement is that the person is covered by professional indemnity insurance that protects their clients. Uh, in the event that those clients suffer financial loss due to an act, error or omission as a result of the services provided by the practitioner or not provided by the practitioner. And uh, in essence, most policies of professional indemnity insurance will satisfy the board's needs. There are, as we know, a number of providers in the marketplace that do provide these professional indemnity insurance policies. The important thing is that they must cover tax services as such. They must also meet the requirement in terms of the amount of cover, and our requirements are quite minimal compared to the requirements of some of the professional associations. So, for example, I know as a member of both CPA Australia and CAANZ Australia, I have a minimum requirement of $2 million of professional indemnity insurance cover. Uh, our, that, that cover that I have there is higher than the cover I need 
to be registered with the board. Our, our cover ranges from $250,000 through to a million dollars. But again, if you were, had had fees ex, well in excess of those figures, then you've got to assess it individually. However, in essence, it must be a valid policy of professional indemnity insurance that covers tax services. It must also include at least one reinstatement um, for multiple claims within the one year. We also recently looked at the issues around cyber security and the increasing likelihood that practitioners are subject to cyber security breaches and the consequences of that. We've said to practitioners that they should check their professional indemnity insurance policies to ensure that their clients are protected in the event of losses from cyber security events. But we've also highlighted the fact that uh, in all probability, their professional indemnity insurance policies will not cover them for what is referred to as first-party costs. So first-party costs are those costs which the practitioner incurs in trying to re-establish their position, getting their services back, paying ransom money if if ransom's required, etc., if that's the best way to get get, uh, access to your systems again. So the requirement, PII, basic cover, covers clients for losses, and it's all about consumer protection. So that's the importance of professional indemnity insurance. Indeed, if you don't have your own personal cover, then you can be covered by another entity. So again, for example, if you're working for, if you're registered, you're working in a partnership or a corporate environment, then the corporate registered entity could have professional indemnity insurance, which covers all of the practitioners under that corporate umbrella, or likewise partnership. Right? So you need to have that professional indemnity insurance which meets the board's requirement. Again, there is a document on our website which do details professional indemnity insurance uh, details there and our requirements specifically. Now, when it comes to the qualification and experience requirements to be registered as a tax agent, a BAS agent, or a tax financial advisor, there are a number of different pathways. If I deal just with tax agents for a start, there are six pathways for entry uh, for a tax agent. And basically, they start with those that have a degree qualification in accounting. Which you refer to as primary qualification. Is a primary qualification. So they need a primary qualification. They need also then what we refer to as board-approved courses. And then they need the experience requirements. So there are three elements of that experience qualification, experience requirement. The primary, the board-approved course, and the experience requirement. So the baseline, if you like, entry as a tax agent is what we refer to as pathway 201, requires a degree course in accounting or equivalent. It requires a board approved course in tax law and commercial law, and it requires a minimum of 12 months experience over the prior five-year period. So the pathway 201 is the one that most agents come through? Most new agents coming in as, you know, coming out of university or whatever would come in under 201 although we do get a number that come in under 206 which 206 is referred to as a person who is a member of a a voting member of a recognized professional association and they can come in under 206 without necessarily having a qualification because they've got extensive experience so the requirement to come in under 206 is that you have a minimum of eight years full-time experience out of the last 10 years. So really what that's saying is that eight years of full-time relevant experience is the equivalent of, of, of a degree qualification, if you like. Um, so 
instead of having a minimum 12 months experience with a degree, it's eight years out of the last 10 full-time relevant experience. Looking at the board approved courses, mm. on the TPB website you have 2,604 approved courses listed on your website, plus 440 courses that haven't been approved and seven in the approval process, and I find that a mind-staggering amount. I was surprised that you would list the courses that haven't been approved, but then, of course, I realised you do that to kind of warn that these courses haven't been approved. Yeah, so look, there's two elements of that, I guess. Firstly, those numbers are significant numbers, and the, again, there's two elements of the approved courses. Firstly, they're the, they're the base degree qualifications and diploma qualifications. So one of the other pathways... Was, is, is a diploma. If you don't have a degree, you can come in with a diploma, which is a 203 pathway. There's a 202 pathway, which is a qualification other, a degree, than, in other than in accounting, etc. So that 2,600 sounds a lot, but there are a lot of universities out there, there are a lot of tertiary institutions, and we're covering then three categories as well. So we've got the BAS qualifications, we've got the tax qualifications, and we've got the TFA qualifications as well. And they're all different. So they're listed on our website if we've approved them for a for an applicant previously we listed on the website so there's always new ones coming in people done different <coughs> courses etc etc okay. now in addition to that the board approved courses in tax law and commercial law for tax agents do require two units of tax and three units of commercial law so typically you can get a situation where a person straight out of a university hasn't done two units of tax and hasn't done three units of commercial law as part of their base degree qualification. So they need to do additional subjects and we've also listed all of those additional subjects and additional courses that they can do to meet that board approved course requirement in tax law and commercial law. And they're listed there as well. Hmm. That's why it sounds a lot. <laughs> yes. And these courses are only to register, so they have nothing to do with the CPE. Correct. So the the base qualification to register with the board is, is if you like, exactly that, a base, uh, whereas CPE is designed, once you've got your base, to keep you up to date. So CPE is post-qualification, keeping your qualifications relevant to the work you're providing, the actually acquiring the base in the first instance is not CPE in itself. Yes. And so to register, you need to have these board-approved courses, which means one course, the course must be one of those 2,604 courses approved. Correct. But to do CPE, it doesn't have to be on this list. No. And Well, if it is on the list, then generally speaking, it'll be precluded from being CPE. Ah. What is required to renew the registration? Well, to renew registration, the first thing to bear in mind is that a person usually once registered for the first time is registered for a three-year period, and thereafter it's generally a three-year period of renewal as well. So this obligation to renew comes up, generally speaking, every three years, and a person to renew their registration must continue to be a fit and proper person. They must satisfy the qualifications and relevant experience requirement at the time that they're due to renew. And generally speaking, if you've qualified in the first instance, your qualifications don't change, and therefore it'll be probably based on your initial registration. However, there are circumstances where a person comes in under that pathway I referred to before of 206 
i.e. that they had eight years in the past 10 years of relevant experience with no qualification. Now, if after three years they've been registered, they still don't meet that 8 in 10 requirement for experience, then we'd have to go back and reassess and see whether or not they come in under one of the other pathways, which could be that they then need to have a, a qualification. So we do need to know, and they need to satisfy the qualifications and experience, relevant experience requirement at the time of the renewal. And in particular, it's the relevant experience that's going to be more of an issue there at renewal time. But in addition to that, they need to meet the continuing professional education requirements. We haven't talked about those specifically, but there's an hour requirement over the three-year period for tax agents. It's 90 hours for BAS agents, it's 45. For TFAs, it's 60 hours over that three-year period. So they need to tick a box to say that they've met that continuing professional education requirements. They've got to show us that they've got current professional indemnity insurance requirement. And again, they need to just complete the online application form. They do have to pay a fee on original application and a fee on renewal as well and provide any supporting documentation that the board requires. I did mention also between the renewal, between the initial registration and renewal or between renewals, there is this requirement to complete an annual declaration obviously on an annual basis, and that shows us firstly that you've got that continuing professional insurance cover, that you undertake the CPE, that you satisfy the fit and proper person requirements, but also, interestingly, that you do also satisfy one of the requirements under the Code of Conduct is that you're up to date with your own personal tax obligations. Now, interestingly, this does trip up a number of people. The excuse often is, well, I was too busy looking after my client responsibilities. I've let my own responsibilities slide. That's not good enough. We expect under the code that you must be up to date with your own tax obligations and you now have to provide us with a declaration at the annual deck process that you are up to date with your own personal tax obligations. You can be behind when you register for the first time, but then no, when you... No, okay. no, you can't. You've got to be up to date with your personal obligations when you first when you first register. We check that through the ATO systems before we register a person to ensure that they're up to date at the time that they're first registered. You then must, once you're in, you've got to keep up and make sure that you keep up to date. I might add that the obligation specifically under the code is no greater obligation than a person has under the Tax Act anyway, and the same obligation that their clients have to to lodge on time. So this is really no greater imposition to lodge than it is under the Tax Act in any event. Yes, yes. However, it does catch out a lot of people, and what we do generally in these circumstances where a person does advise us that they're not up to date, either with their lodgements or alternatively with the debt obligations, is we generally give them additional time to get their house in order. And that could be up to, say, we might give them six, 12 months to say, you know, just make sure you do this in this time frame. And then if they don't do that, then obviously we'll take harsher action. But we'll always give them an opportunity to catch up in the first place. You have some very interesting statistics on your website. Mm-hmm. For example, it takes 63 days to register as a new tax financial advisor, but only 32 to 34 days to register as a tax agent. 
do you do you have any inkling why it takes uh, twice as long well, to register as a tax financial advisor as opposed to a... Well, I do, but the thing is, those figures may now be a little bit out of date. In fact, I can tell you, the recent, most recent figures I've got is that all of them, a new application for a tax financial advisor, tax agent, BAS agents are all under 20 days. Oh, wow. So the, the um, stats probably oh, have okay. been outdated. Uh, outdated. But so it's all under 20 days at the moment. The reason that they were higher for tax financial advisors is we had so many people that were coming in under a new regime. Oh, yes, of course. But we've now got, and we had a large number of came in on renewals, and, and we've still got, I think it's now less than 400 uh, renewals that we had to process out of something like 10,000. Yes. And they all come in at a similar time. Yes. So that did um, blow out yeah. our times a little bit. But we've got it back under control, and now... Yes, you do. Because, um, for example, your application's on hand as at, as at the 31st of December 2017, yep. so not long ago, was 8,492. And that just three months later, on the 31st of March 2018, it went down from 8,000 to 4,847. Well, well, I can so tell you, as of, 30, as of 30th of June this year, it'll probably be under 1,000. Oh, wow. Yeah, so mm. we've made significant inroads in terms of getting that, those figures down. Welcome back. I didn't know that even quantity surveyors and few tax credit specialists have to register with the TPB. In the next episode, episode 60, Miranda Brownie of SMSF Advisor will give us a May 2018 update around SMSF. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.